if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading for today comes out of Song of Solomon, Whoo, uh, chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 5. If you're using the blue paperback Bibles, you can find that on page 326. I'll give you a few moments to get there. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you, and there she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this unique book called the Song of Solomon because it speaks to a very, very real part of life, of love between one man and one woman, the complexities of that, the depth of that, the even intensity of that. And I thank you that, that here in chapter eight, we get to have a description of love that really challenges us, that really shows us its depth and its potential. And I pray that today as we explore this in contrast to indifference, that you would give our hearts a deep desire to embody this type of love, God. That your Holy Spirit would help us, would convict us of the ways that we've treated love lightly and cheaply, and that you would give us the power to embody this type of love that is deep and intense and lifelong. And so God, would you unite your power with my weak words and, and help us in that way? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, today we are finishing up our contested marriage series. Uh, we've been going through this through the month of October. Uh, and to, to start us off, I just want you to imagine with me that you are a couple in your mid-80s, so you've been married for a while, and you're mentoring another couple who is just beginning the journey of their marriage. And you've been through ups and downs, you've been through trials and joys, but no matter what you've been through, you made it to this point. You, you as husband and wife have made it through an entire life together and, and now you have the privilege of passing on what you've learned to a young couple. If that was you, what do you think you would say? I, I mean, I know it's, it's hard to probably answer that because in fact, you're not a couple in your 80s, so you don't really have the wisdom that would be there. But if you had to imagine, what would you give to that couple in order to help them preserve their marriage. Maybe, maybe you'd help them understand the dynamics of enduring through trial together. Maybe you'd want to hit on that. Maybe you'd open up to them how, how you would learn to walk through stubborn disagreement with one another. But, but most of all, at some point, 
surely you would give them advice on how to protect their love, right? You would want to coach them and mentor them on how to protect this thing called love. Whoever this young couple is, they're probably bursting with love for one another, right? They're, they're eager and maybe even naive about the love that they are going to experience with one another. And so if you were that couple in your mid-80s, you'd probably want to teach them what love is and what love does, or at least what, what needs to be done in order for love to stay. Being that couple that passes down words of wisdom to a young couple is kind of like what's going on here in this section of the Song of Solomon. And so friends, the, the, the Bible is broken out into different categories, different books try to accomplish different things. Different books in the Bible are, are trying to do different things. And some are, some are narratives. And so if you've, if you've read things like the Gospels or even the historical narratives in the Old Testament, they're, they're trying to describe God's faithfulness to his people through a story. Some are prophetic that are giving a warning or a comfort to God's people. And some are, are in what's called the, the wisdom tradition. And this book, the Song of Solomon, is, is in that category. So, so there are five books in the Bible that are in the wisdom category. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and finally the Song of Solomon. And if you've read any of those other books, like Job or Proverbs, you know that the Song of Solomon is pretty unique when you place it alongside those other books, right? The Song of Solomon is spicy friends. Who here has read the Song of Solomon or knows what it contains? <laughs> it is spicy. It, it traces the story of two lovers who start off in a, in a courtship. And in that courtship, they're burning with desire for one another. Some of the strongest language of human desire is used in the Bible. They want to be together. And yes, emotionally and relationally, but also probably most of all, physically, sexually, they are burning for one another. And so the first few chapters of this book document the desire of these two. And then it finally culminates with their wedding in chapter three and then their sexual intimacy in chapter four. And in fact, sexual intimacy is so important in this book that the moment that these two are able to join themselves together is the literal center of the book. Like if you add up all of the verses of the Song of Solomon, the literal center of the book is the moment that they are able to enjoy sexual intimacy with one another. At the very center, it's an intentional setup from the author to show us what he's trying to highlight. But then after chapter four, the book begins to document normal life together. So this couple, these two lovers have been through a lot. They've burned with desire for one another. They're finally able to connect with one another emotionally, relationally, and sexually. And then the rest of the book is really kind of documenting normal life. What it's like after the wedding. What it's like after the initi initiation of sexual intimacy. What is it like? And, and here at the very end, these two lovers are in their old age and are passing on their wisdom of love. The, the, the text reads that they come out of the wilderness leaning on one another, which most commentators believe shows them in their old age. They've come out of something difficult. They've come out of something hard, the wilderness, and they are leaning on their beloved. And so this is the couple that I told you to imagine yourself as. They are elderly, they are filled with wisdom, and they are passing it along to a younger generation. And what they have to pass on 
as you can tell, deals with love. What, what is love? Or, or maybe a more specific question, what is love like? And so today, I want us to go through this poetic vision of love that this elderly couple has to give and, and see if it, it can't help us as we go through it. But before we get into that, before we jump into all of that, I, I do first want to chat a little bit about the opposite of what we're talking about today. And so this, this whole series has been built around the idea that there are mindsets or habits or realities that are always competing for ground in your marriage. There are realities and habits that are fighting for ground in your marriage. And, and in those competitions, if we don't recognize those and if we don't put the effort toward embodying the healthy side, then inevitably the unhealthy side will take over. And so throughout the series, those competitions that we've talked about have been the competition between grace and bitterness, between vulnerability and hiding, these things that will fight for ground in your marriage. And today, the competition is between love and indifference. Indifference. Indifference, friends, is something that will fight for ground in your marriage. That if you are not embodying, if you are not fighting for love in your marriage, indifference will take hold. I mean, you've probably heard that old saying, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. I really think that's true. That indifference and love cannot coexist. One will inevitably push out the other. And my warning for you today is to recognize that, to really wake up to how lethal indif indifference really is. It has the potential to kill love in your marriage. And so, so the French essayist and novelist Anaïs Nin, uh, where is Seth? You got to correct me on that pronunciation. She's French, so you got to help me out with that, okay? She says this, love never dies a natural death. It dies because we don't know how to replenish its source. It dies of blindness and errors and betrayals. It dies of illness and wounds, of weariness, of witherings and of tarnishings. Friends, love doesn't die a natural death. It is assaulted to death. And one of the things that assault it most is indifference. It dies over time because of the wounds it suffers from indifference. And we see the deadly results of indifference in a marriage, in love, I think around us and in our culture, right? So one of the, I'm a big sports guy. One of the big headlines this last week was that Tom Brady and his wife, Giselle, uh, finalized their divorce. And so if you're a sports guy, you know that uh, Tom Brady retired last year and then all of a sudden was like, nope, I don't wanna be at home with my kids. I'm gonna go back for another year, which I think we can all kind of sympathize with, right? <laughs> yes, okay, I'm the only one, I'm the sinner in this room. Um, and he, he goes back to football and his wife, Giselle, is, is mad about it and they're trying to work through it. Eventually they don't. And uh, they finalized their divorce this last week. And, and I read their description of, of why they got divorced. And if you really believed that, then you would think that their love simply died a natural death. Oh, we just, we, we grew apart. We're no longer the same people. Things have changed as if that's natural to happen to love. No, what really happened is that Tom, I can call him by his first name, <laughs> chose football over his family. 
He had a certain indifference toward his wife that he chose to say, I know what you're telling me, but, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on what I really love, which is football. Their love did not die a natural death. They didn't grow apart, but at some point indifference came in and it stayed. And that staying power of indifference killed the marriage. We see it in our culture, and I think we, we see it around us as well. Maybe with friends, family. I, I've been married for nine years this month. And when, I, when my wife and I got married, there was, it was kind of a, one of those times where it was kind of an influx of new marriages at the church we were at. There were a ton of young couples. Uh, one of the busiest summers I've ever had, being a groomsman here, a bachelor party here. And now, nine years later, there's so many of my friends that are divorced. Some of them lasted six, seven months. Some of them lasted five, six years. And, and I can tell you from those friends that I know deeply what happened. At some point, indifference was allowed to stay. At some point, indifference was allowed to stay. And so what I'm trying to get across today, friends, is that we have to, we have to wake up. We have to see the destructive power of this because your marriage can't survive indifference for that long. Marriage is this strange paradox where it's incredibly secure. You're under covenant and you're able to relate to one another under covenant. But then also, friends, I just want you to know your marriage is also very fragile in some areas. It can only take so much for so long. And so I'm saying all of this to, to plead with you to wake up to the dangers of indifference and how it can kill. It, your marriage can't can't survive the load of indifference over a long period of time. So with that said, with that warning, let's explore what these two have to say about love. So, so first in, in verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. So the first description that this elderly couple gives is, this, is the description of a, a seal being placed on the other's arm and heart. Now, in ancient cultures, a, a seal, usually placed upon the hand or worn as a chain around the neck, uh, was used to literally seal someone with, as their own possession. It was a way to be able to say, I, you are now mine. And so they used all kinds of valuable things like necklaces and different seals that can go on the wrist in order to signify that you are now Mine And this woman here who is speaking in verses five through seven says, set me as a seal upon your heart. Let me be the one on your heart. Let me be the one that seals you and shows everyone else that I belong to you and you belong to me. The language of, of sealing love is meant to symbolize the intentional possession of another person, the holding of another person as your own. And the speaker here first says that her desire is to be set as a seal upon the heart of that man. Not, not just a seal on the hand or even on the arm, but it is a seal on the heart. And so what she's describing is the desire to have a seal on the other's heart in order to show the possession of that heart. In other words, she is voicing the desire that in love, she would be wholeheartedly esteemed by the other. Wholeheartedly esteemed by the other. That's what love is to her. Her desire is, is not a split heart, 
It's not a split affection, but rather she wants to exist in the other person's heart as the owner of that person's affections. Wholeheartedness. Let all of your heart be mine. Let all of my heart be yours. This love is not a desire for a flighty love that is like the morning mist. The love that in many ways, again, she's commending to younger couples is the love that's not like a flash in the pan, but is rather a love that signifies ownership, even possession. It's as permanent as the seal. And the, and the lesson here, friends, I think, is that in order for love to grow strong, there has to be a wholeheartedness, even a single-mindedness about it. Love, love grows best when one person, one person owns all of that love. And love weakens and, friends, eventually dies when love is separated or fractured or split among its options. Love it needs a single-mindedness to flourish. And I think that's a word we all need in our culture today. In fact, I was reading a study this last week that was done, uh, I think, two years ago. And it, it was referencing or studying the, uh, the existence or prevalence of adultery tied to emotional affairs. And throughout the study, one of the things that they did or one of the things they saw is that in the late 2000s, uh, so like 2007 to 2010, there was a major uptick in cases of adultery that were tied to emotional affairs. So not just adultery, where it's just like a one night stand, someone gets drunk at a bar and sleeps with someone else, but someone who intentionally cheated on their spouse because they already had an emotional affair that was going on. And friends, can you tell me what was going on in the late 2000s that might be connected to that? iPhones, what else? Say it again. Housing crisis, okay, we're getting there. Social media, <laughs> social media, an emotional affair was made available even prevalent because of social media, specifically with Facebook. Facebook offered all of these couples a chance to reconnect with old friends and for some of them a chance to reconnect with old flames. And the study found that adultery that first started off as an emotional affair jumped off the page when Facebook got popular. <laughs> I mean, why is this? But, well, because it gave the opportunity to feed a lack of single-mindedness. All of a sudden, these men and women were able to connect with old flames, right? The ones that got away and it fractured their marriage. It split their affection and the consequences were, in the end, adultery. In order for love to flourish we have to make up our mind that we're going to love just one person. That sounds so simple, but if you do that, if you make up your mind that I'm going to reserve all of my affection for this one person, it can flourish. We, to make up our minds that our hearts are wholly possessed by one person and that we don't give space or opportunity for that love to be split or even reserved for someone else. So let me ask you this. Do you still consider your options? Speaking to you who are married right now, do you still consider your options? Do you still let yourself emotionally fantasize about that person that got away? Do you still think about that old flame and imagine, I wonder what life would have been like with that person? 
friends, that is split affection. And it will kill love. Love requires a single-mindedness. One person to own it. Next, in verse 6, she says this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as fe- is fierce as the grave. So the speaker m- moves on to, to why she desires to be set as a seal on her lover's heart. Because love is as strong as death and as jealous as the grave. Who had that in their wedding pass? <laughs> That's a little dark, right? <laughs> Love is as strong as death. That's a, that's, a, that's a little dark and maybe not a description that many of us would give, but what is she trying to describe here? She, she's trying to describe that love is persistent. Love is stubborn, even irreversible. That, that like death, love is persistent and irreversible. It, it holds fast and it never gives up. That's what death does. When you die, it holds you pretty strong, right? That's what she's trying to use to describe love. And she reinforces this idea with kind of the parallel comparison to jealousy, which is this totally committed passion that she says is as strong as the grave. And so the love that this older couple describes and commends, it's the love that never lets go. It is stubborn because it will fight for the one that it loves. And it is as unrelenting as the grave, which never yields one who has come into its grip. Love is meant to hold one another fast, to not let one another go. It is stubborn and unrelenting. It holds fast. And this, friends, is in direct contrast to the love that is so often committed around us in our culture, right? Just a direct contrast to the easy, painless, come-and-go love that our culture so often puts in front of us. That in the world around us, marital love is, is not really binding. Instead, it's, it's kind of always up for reevaluation. It's not stubborn, but soft. The love that our culture commends to us is a love that comes and goes. But this elderly couple who has made it this far instead commends to us a love that, like the grave, never lets go, never gives up, never yields or relents. This is, this is actually one area, this, this point on what love is, how stubborn and persistent it, it is that I am most convicted by because my wife, Courtney, really embodies this so well. She is so stubborn. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. No, she embodies this really well. This, this endurance of not giving up, of not letting go. Because friends, I I have to tell you, I have to confess to you that throughout this whole series, as we've gone through different ideas like grace and bitterness and hiding and vulnerability, those things aren't really something that are most tempting to me in my marriage. But what is most difficult for me is indifference, is to just kind of let things sit and then eventually operate as roommates. That's my struggle. But my wife never gives up. She, she never gives up on seeking to have love infused in our marriage again. One example is this last week, when on Friday she planned like a, a little date in our house, and so we carved pumpkin, pumpkins together. Uh, but one of the things we also did is that 
uh, like a year and a half ago, I, I bought this kind of card game that has questions uh, in order to kind of reconnect with one another, which is really helpful for me because that's where I really struggle is like coming up with questions that will reignite things. And so it has it right there. I just have to ask it. I don't have to come up with it. It's awesome. But I was so ashamed because when I went to go get that car, that card game off the shelf, you know what I had to do? I had to wipe off the dust. Bought it a year and a half ago and barely took off the plastic. So easy to be indifferent. But there was my wife saying, yeah, take those cards off the shelf and let's reconnect. It's a stubbornness, a endurance to, to reconnect, to not let the other one go. Love is stubborn, which means it doesn't give up in the face of difficulty. There are lots of things that threaten love in a marriage, but the love that this couple commends to us is a love that overcomes and indeed endures in the face of what threatens that love. Stubborn, unrelenting as the grave. Verse seven. She continues, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so finally, the, the speaker uncovers the value of love, the value of what love is. And she shows the value of love by first comparing it to what she says, the very flame of the Lord. And the language here is, is really striking. So in, in its original Hebrew, it reads literally, its flashes are the very lightning of Yahweh. That's how it reads. Now, now anytime a, a Jewish person would have heard the lightning of Yahweh, they probably would have thought back to the book of Exodus, because in, in that book, after God rescued his people from Egypt, they come to a mountain called Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai, God comes down to give Moses the law, and the way that it describes God's presence coming down onto the mountain is that there are rump peals of thunder and lightning, the lightning of Yahweh. And it actually terrifies the people and they don't want to go on the mountain. But that's what she describes love as, that the, the, this terrifying and awe-inspiring lightning of Yahweh. And she also says that this lightning of Yahweh that is in love that she compares love to. She says that many waters cannot quench it. That's how strong it is. Now, again, to, to just take you deeper and help you see the depths of this, let me, let me share a little bit more about the language here. So in the Hebrew, in this reference to many waters, it's an expression that, is, uh, that has a, a phrase where we, that we find very few times in the Old Testament. And it's like three times, one is here, one is, on, one is in Isaiah 50, and then the other is in Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, this many waters is used to describe the watery chaos that exists after, right after God creates. So in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, but there's still this chaos, this void, this watery chaos going on that God has yet to tame and make into something habitable. And that phrase there for the watery chaos is the same Hebrew phrase used here for many waters. Now, no, no, why does that matter? Because it shows what the speaker is saying when she says love cannot be quenched. 
What she's saying is that the flame of love, the lightning of Yahweh is so strong that even the cursed chaos of the world cannot overcome it, cannot quench it. The love that she commends to us is a love that overcomes and endures through the chaotic trials of life. Again, it does not give up. That's how strong this love is. And not only does it not give up, but more than that, it overcomes through those trials together. The flame of the Lord, this love that they commend is strong enough to overcome the cursed chaos of everything that happens out there in real life. All the trials that you go through together, love can overcome it. And then finally, the the value of love is shown by the price, she says, could never be paid for. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Now that sounds foreign to us. No one is really paying for love. But remember, this was written in a culture where soon-to-be husbands offered real wealth in order to marry a woman. This was what's called a, a, a dowry, and it was usually required in order to marry someone's daughter. A man would pay the woman's father a portion of his wealth in exchange for being able to marry that woman. But here, the love that is commended to us is so strong, so valuable, that even the entire wealth of a man's house would not be enough to really do it justice would not be enough. If you gave up everything you had in order to buy love, that would still not be enough to express the value of what they're commending to us here. And so, friends, the love that we have here that's commended to us is single-minded. It makes up its mind that it will love singularly, singularly and exclusively. It's also stubborn and refuses the easy route. It sticks with and it is stronger than the chaos of this world and more valuable than the wealth of this world. To which all of us would ideally swoon, right? Oh, that sounds incredible. But the truth is this, rarely do we find this love experienced in our marriages, right? This type of love. Many of us might feel stuck in indifference. Again, this is the area that I struggle with most. Sometimes my temptation toward indifference feels so strong that it's not even worth the effort to overcome it. What do you do then? What do you do if maybe you're, you're tempted to split your love? What do you do if you're, you're tired of holding fast to your love as strongly as a grave? Or what if trials and tribulations have not been overcome by love, but indeed begun to quench love? What do we do? Well, there's an interesting scene earlier in the Song of Solomon in chapter five. So like I said at the very beginning, in chapter four, these two lovers finally get married. They get to have some sex together. And then the rest of the book is about real life. Uh, And in chapter five, there's this really strange scene where the woman has this dream. That's actually a theme throughout the book as well. She has all kinds of dreams. Uh, And in the dream, she is uh, laying down to go to bed. She's in her quarters. Uh, and she's ready to go to sleep, and she sees that Solomon is knocking at the door, presumably to either talk with her or to initiate sexual intimacy with her, and she says, I'm in bed, get out. (laughs) That's what she says. Not tonight, okay? Uh, And she, you know, Solomon kind of does his, like, you know, throws down, like, his best lines trying to convince her otherwise, and she says, no, like, get out of here. I'm already in bed. 
And it's such a striking picture of these two that in the beginning of the book were overcome with desire, overcome with passion for one another. And here they are experiencing someone's indifference. How things have changed. And throughout the, as she goes through the dream, she, she realizes, you know, I, I actually do want to talk with Solomon. I want to be with Solomon. And so she opens the door and Solomon is gone. He already left. He was like, all right, not worth the effort. I'm just going to go do my own thing. And so he leaves and she starts in the dream to search throughout the city for her lover and she can't find him. She can't find him anywhere. And there's this moment where the characters that are called the daughters of Jerusalem come to her in order to try to help her find her lover. And what they do in order to help her find her lover is have her describe all the things that she loves about him. All the things that she initially loved about Solomon that really won her heart over for him. Do you see what the book is trying to do? As this vision or this dream that the woman has where she experiences some level of indifference, the way that it's repaired, the way that it's restored is that she's told to remember who her lover is, why she fell in love with him in the first place. And if you're stuck in indifference, if you feel like I'm just not all these descriptions of love and all that, that sounds great, but it feels like way too much effort to try to restore something that's been lost. Friends, that's the first step. Why did you fall in love in the first place? What, what, what made you want to be with that person? What was it that attracted you? What was it that won your heart over? If you can study that and remember that, slowly love can become ignited again. It's almost like nostalgia has this weird power to reignite desire in hearts. Oh, I wish I, he was like this, she was like this when we fell in love. That's what won me over it. Friends, that can begin to ignite love in your heart. This is the, the discipline of memory that we remember why we started this whole thing off in the first place. So we remember why we even loved them. But also, if you're stuck in indifference, throughout scripture, we are told to remember the Lord. So not only are we to remember why we fell in love with one another, but also we are commanded to remember the Lord. And here we should certainly do that. The love of God that was expressed in Christ is everything that was described in verses six or seven. He has set us as a seal upon his heart. He has made us his own. His love is even stronger than death. His jealousy for us, his passionate desire to have us is much more fierce than the grave. The watery chaos of our lives could not quench his love. The watery chaos of our sin and rebellion against him could not quench the love that he had. And he gave up all the wealth of his house in order to have us. And when we see that, when we remember that, when we drink of this love, we can have our love for one another replenished. So friends, again, throughout the series, I've been ending it in the same way. Look to Jesus. You filled with bitterness, receive his grace. You filled with animosity toward that person, receive the peace of Christ. You tempted to hide, hear the invitation of vulnerability in the gospel. And are you covered in indifference? Look to the love of God in Christ. 
This is a well that doesn't run dry. The gospel is a good news that Jesus suffered in love so that in your struggle to love, you would never ever be alone and have to figure it out on your own. As you give yourself to love, he showers you with his love so that you could, receive, you could give something that you yourself are receiving. Let me end it like this. Paul Tripp in his book on marriage lands it this way. Jesus knew that your struggle to love is so deep that a certain system of wisdom or a certain set of provisions would never be enough. He knew the only thing that would help you would be if he gave you himself. So that is exactly what he did. Christ Jesus gave himself so that right here, right now, you would have the resources you need to live a concrete and continuing life of love. Friends, the love of God in Christ is a never ending well. Maybe in your marriage, you're not the one struggling with indifference, but you're the one who's kind of the victim of indifference. Feels like you can't get your spouse to open up, to reconnect, reignite. Friends, the love of God in Christ can replenish you as well. So let's, let's, let's pray and let's, let's reflect together on the love of Christ. Father, we thank you for your love that never lets go, that never runs dry, never gives up, never leaves. And God, we pray that in our closest relationships, that our love for one another would be fueled by and replenished by your great love for us. Everything that this couple commended to us is, is what we want. We know that. We don't have to be told to want these things. Our, our hearts automatically do. But how to get there, how to reignite that, that's where sometimes we're confused and distraught. And so I pray that the well of your love would replenish our motivation and our desire to open up to one another in love, to be committed to one another single-mindedly, to be stubborn and persistent and to together have a love that overcomes the chaos of this world and is more valuable than anything else we could find or give. So Father, as we, as we reflect, would you just help us to sense your great love and be replaced ourselves, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to it. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.